one of my managers back at Proctor uh, taught me, because back then you take physical notes. Now I take, you know, online notes or virtual notes, but you take a physical pad. And he said, in the draw a little box in the lower right corner, put a plus and a minus, and then in any meeting, if there's somebody in there that works for you, take notes about how they did. Make sure you write down, and then tell them that your next next time you're together. And so it's trained me to always be taking notes about people when I'm in a meeting with them. If I'm in a meeting and someone that works in my organization has done a really good job on something, I go into their one-on-one virtual folder that I have in, in OneNote and jot it down. And then when we meet, we meet every other week, I tell them that. Want to boost your productivity and decision-making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource, whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. Welcome to the CEO Sessions, hosted by Ben Fanning. And here's Ben. Good day, listeners. Today, I've got Ed Vlasic, who serves as the Chief Executive Officer over at Lasco Products. Lasco, in case you're not familiar with it, is the leading home comfort products company providing fans, heaters, which by the way, we have a few of those, air purifiers, humidifiers, home ventilation products, and water damage remediation products. Yes, I do live in Charleston, South Carolina. So you can imagine when it comes to a lot of these things, we do use them. And yes, I did say we use the heaters. (laughs) Before Lasco, it actually consulted for private equity firms. And before that, the region had for Hinkle for the $1.1 billion beauty care North America business home to Walnut Brands that you've probably heard of, such as Dial and Reichard. He's also held senior leadership positions at Novartis, Johnson & Johnson, and Procter & Gamble. Ed earned his BS in electrical engineering and an MBA from Rutgers University. He's also a student mentor at the Rutgers Business School, which we're going to dive into in just a second. Ed, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ben, and uh, good morning. How are you? Uh, doing well, man. i looking forward to this. I told my daughter on the way to school, you know that heater that we use this morning? No, we don't. No, we are using a space heater in Charleston, South Carolina, and it's 50 degrees outside. So we get yeah, called pretty yeah. easy here. But I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm interviewing the CEO today that brought us that heater. She thought that was pretty cool. So thank you from her and from me. Well, thank you for your business. We appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, we've had it for a long time. It's still it's still hanging in there. Great. So They do, they do run for a long time, which is yeah. great. So let's dive into this. Uh, yeah. One of the things we've talked a little bit about uh, before interview today is how do you respond in a stressful situation? Maybe give us, your, give us a little bit of that. Yeah. So for me, what's really helpful is to think through when have I, when has it been worse than this before? And I think, well, if I got through that, I can get through this. And probably one of the more stressful situations that I had pretty much every day in my first job, I was a production supervisor at Procter and Gamble making Duncan Hines cake mix in uh, Staten Island, New York. We had a Teamsters union was the union that was there. And my responsibility was to get production out every day safely and on quality. And I remember in the morning, I'd be driving into work and I'd make that right turn onto the main street where, where P&G was located. And I'd get a pit in my stomach because I was about to enter a team meeting where who knew what was going to be going on and who had an issue and what things were going to be thrown at me. And I would just build and build and build. And by the time I got in the office, I was in a, in a knot. But then I 
get my game face on, I get ready. And I'm like, all right, I remember we'd, we'd wear jumpers like gas station attendants because we were in a food processing. Facility. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So that was my uniform. So I had this blue jumper and my buddy and I used to call it our coat of armor. And that was our armor. And so we'd put our jumper on, put our armor on and go into the team meeting. And uh, it was different every day, difficult every day, but I survived it and uh, got through it. And so anytime I think about a, a stressful situation, I think, you know, I got through that. I can get through anything. And I was 22 years old at the time. Really amazing experience. I don't think I appreciated so much when I had it. But even today, if I'm about to do something that's going to stress me out, I think about my blue jumpsuit and my, and my body armor. <laughs> I love it. You know, there's so many things about that. Number one, it sounds like baptism by fire. They pretty much threw you to the dogs right out of the gate, right? So people that had been at that company a long time, here's this young buck coming in thinking that he's going to tell us what to do around here. Little did you Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a brilliant strategy on P&G's part, right? They would hire mostly engineers from undergraduate school. A lot of them were interns. I was an intern there as a summer, so I knew what I was getting into. And they'd make them line supervisors and they'd give you the training. And you had technical knowledge to understand how things are made and how equipment runs. But then, you know, you'd get, I had 35 hourly workers reporting to me in my first day on the job at undergrad, right? And, you know, things have changed. But back then I felt like their job, those hourly workers were figuring, how do I get in the break room as fast as possible? And my job was, how do I make yeah. sure we're running these machines as keep fast working. as possible? Yeah, keep it Keeping running. Keeping them working. And, and there's there's a ton of stories from that experience. And again, I don't I don't remember being in it thinking this is so valuable. I just did it. And because we were out of undergrad, you just didn't know better, right? You just thought this is the way it is. And that job was as much engineering as it was HR and getting to know people and motivating people at a very early age. And my colleagues and I that were there, many of us are still friends. In fact, I married one of them. My wife was from that experience. We have those memories today. We think back how many times in our 30 plus year careers, we derived some value out of that first assignment and, and, and really, really got a, a learning that lasted with us forever. You know, I can totally relate to that. My first job out of school was working for Russell Athletic in the, in the apparel industry as an industrial engineer. And I was ready to do my engineering thing. And what they sent me to do was go work on the sewing line for a while down in Latin America. And let's just say I was terrible at it. I mean, (laughs) sitting on that, my back was hurting and I could just see like the sweatshirts piling up because my station had quality problems and I was slowing everybody down. But I tell you what, it was a great experience because it made me appreciate the engineering side so much more because I, I wasn't just looking at the motion and saving time and whatnot, I was looking at, Hey, this is their livelihood. They're doing this all day until you've been in their shoes a little bit, you know, been in there with them. It's hard to relate to it. And so at at that time, I'm like, man, I just graduated college. What am I doing, you know, on the sewing line here, but it was a tremendous learning experience and I had many other ones. And I thought I was kind of being hazed at the time, but turns out I was getting like my real education at that point. Yeah, it really was. And I remember like uh, we ended up shutting that plant down because it was just too costly to to run that plant out of New York. And I was there for the shutdown and I had to help counsel the, all the workers and did whatever the next phase of their life was. And again, I was like 25. So what would I know about that? Right. But I remember all these these folks that I worked with over the years 
I distinctly remember a guy, Hank Garut, and he came to my office and he said, can you help me write a resume? And this guy didn't even have a college degree, a high school diploma rather, or anything in college, but he needed to write a resume to go find other work. And it was so rewarding. Like, I, I don't know that I know how to write a resume. I knew how to write it better than him. And so we worked together on his resume and it was very rewarding. Again, much more rewarding reflecting on it now than it was in the moment. Yeah. You said a big word reflection and reflecting on it. And I think a lot of leaders miss that superpower or, or miss developing that skill along the way, even though it's so important because uh, it translates your life's experience, you know, into wisdom and insight. From a reflection standpoint, is that something that you do periodically or do you have a certain routine or how do you approach reflection? Yeah, so I, I do reflect a lot. I mean, one of the things about me, it's a core value of mine is I don't look back and say, I wish I did something different because I feel like whatever I did got me to where I am. And as long as I'm happy where I am, then that was the right road to take. But I do reflect to kind of look back and say, well, what was I feeling at that time? Why did I make that decision? So I'm a, I'm a big journaler. I don't journal every day, but I journal pretty often. And I try to be very true to myself in that journal because it's just me. And I'll reflect on that. I'll go back and read, what was I thinking a year ago, right? And one thing I tell people, I, one of the coaching I give people is when you're in a really difficult part of your life, whether it's personal or work-related or physical, write down how you're feeling and give yourself a timeline on how long you can feel that way. So if a job's not going well for you, write down, okay, well, why is it not going well? What are the things you're missing? How are you feeling? And then when are you, how long are you going to give yourself to make a change, to feel different? Put that in the journal, three months, six months, whatever, a year, then come back in three months, reread what you wrote and say, have I made any progress here? And if you haven't, then you should make a change. It's really time to make a change because you gave yourself a timeline, you look back. And so I think that reflection is really helpful from that standpoint to not necessarily rethink your steps, but remember what you felt like in the moment. Because I think so many people forget what they felt like in the moment and then they regret a decision, right? And mm, mm -hmm. if you write down why you made the decision, then at least you can recreate that event because not every event you can remember down to why did you make that decision? And so I do reflect a lot. You know, I reflect only as it advances what I do next, right? That's yeah. the way I think about it. Yeah, because it informs your future decisions. And those are your personal experiences. And like you say, it's sometimes hindsight's 2020 and sometimes it's not. But at least if you've got some kind of documentation about not just the event, but how you were feeling at the time, you'll know if things have changed. If you're really frustrated with your job six months ago and you're still having that frustration, you may be asking yourself, well, what have I tried new in six months to improve the situation? What new conversations have I had? What are new routines or habits have I <laughs> have I tried at work to try to change this? And there's really not much there. Then that's a perfect time to recognize, hey, I need to make some changes. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. You know, it's interesting and I think really cool is I had a pretty massive reflection when I got the job I'm in now because over my career, I started as an engineer in a plant making Duncan Hines cake mix. I've worked in different industries, different functions. I've taken side steps, I've taken backward steps. And all along the way, I was collecting tools in my toolbox, right? And rather than have 15 different wrenches, I had some wrenches, some hammers, some screwdrivers, you know, whatever the different tools are. And along the way, I used some of the tools I collected, right? But when I got this job, I said, holy crap, now I know why I built that toolbox. This is the CEO toolbox. And I've been building this for a long time. And there are things that, you know, I, I related to my manufacturing days. Lasco is a very high manufacturing company. We have two plants here in the US and 
employ about a thousand people. I pull in things I learned when I was 22 into things I do today and decisions I make today. Yeah, back so, when you were actually working in the plant yourself. Yeah, exactly. you know, like If you look at your LinkedIn, you can see you started in manufacturing, like on the floor, virtually it got into, it was IT and process and finance and then in, into the more marketing side, right? Yeah, I was in marketing for a long time. I, I did a stint in finance, I did a stint in sales. I was in Europe, I was here, I was in the South. I mean, just, you know, I don't know that I sought out each next opportunity thinking about a long-term goal. It was more just like, you know what, is this role gonna, am I gonna grow in the role? Can I contribute, right? And do you think I'm gonna have fun? And if those three things were answered yes, then I took those roles. And there were people on the way that said, why did you do that? That made no sense. And, you know, but it was right for me. And only now in this role do I feel like I've been preparing for it my entire career. It makes me love the role every day. I loved it since when I first got it two years ago. And I still, no matter what's going on, it's like, this is, this is what I was meant, you know? Well, yeah, I like that. I think that's some good guidance for anybody who's like making career decisions. I like the idea that it was contribute and have fun. And what was the third one? Was there a third one? Uh, yeah, it was, uh, is it, am I going to grow? Grow. Can I make yeah. a contribution and can I have fun? And I, when I talk to people at some career inflection point, whether they're 20 years in or they're just starting out, my opinion is, and it's different for everybody. There are people that I know that wanted to be a CEO from the day they left undergrad, right? And so that was always their goal. And that's fine. That's whatever works for you, you know? And I, what I tell them is, listen, I look at it and say, if you feel like you're not sure if you should take a growth opportunity that's not maybe going in the logical direction of your next step, well, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? You do it and you lose a year. You lose two years. Do you really lose anything? Because you've learned something and you might learn something you don't want to do. You know, I was out of large multinationals for a good bit of time and tried them again and realized I'm out. I'm out for good. You know, it's just not my thing anymore. And so I think it was good even, even in my 50s to start learning things about myself because I still got many years ahead of me. And even when my career runs out, I've got three kids, I've got other people I counsel, and I want them to learn from the things that I thought I did well and things that I didn't do well. Yeah, a lot of good stuff there. It reminds me a little bit of what uh, Tim, author Tim Ferriss says, he didn't like when he's gonna make a decision whether he's gonna make an investment in a certain company or learn a new skill. And he says, I want to make it to where I can't lose. One, is there, like, even if financially doesn't play, pay off, am I going to build new relationships? Or is there, like, will the relationships be worth it? Or am I going to grow and learn from it? And if, and if you can hedge on those, then there really is no lost business investment necessarily if, if those pay off. And the same in your career. It sounds like you've picked up relationships and these insights and skills along the way and it's prepared you, you know, to be at the helm there. So let's, let's step back in time too. I want to ask you about your first performance review because this is something that, you know, a lot of employees deal with at least once a year, sometimes more, and they're not always the most pleasant experience. So what, so what kind of guidance do you have for employees and, and leaders in that realm? Yeah. So, um, I worked, as I said, I started my career at Procter & Gamble, and, and P&G was ahead of its time in many ways, uh, including giving and receiving feedback. And so um, it was the first time, my first performance review out of college, so I didn't know any. I only knew the way, wherever they teach me, that's where we're going to do it. And they were experimenting with a new way of doing performance reviews. And so 
you would sit down with your manager and get eight to 10 people to give you feedback, collect feedback. And it would be a peers, a people that work for you and other senior people. So kind of across the board. And of course, your manager, they would then be required to write it all down. And P&G was very, it was important to them that if you, if you made a statement about somebody, there were examples, right? You need to at least have a two, three examples of, of supporting your point of view which that sounds like a normal performance review, except it was delivered live as a group with your manager there. Ooh. So I had eight people in a room going around, giving me feedback about my performance at one time. Fun. I'm glad it was my first performance review because it kind of then ripped that bandaid off. And it's made me actually, I don't get anxious about performance reviews. I don't get anxious getting them or giving them. And I don't think that, I mean, I think that's part of the reason why, but I also feel like I tend to think I give a lot of feedback anyway, but if I don't, the performance review is a great place to catch up. And that's why you want to do them pretty frequently. Like you really should do an official one mid-year so that you can course correct people and make sure they know how they're tracking. So they're not surprised at the end of the year. I mean, there's nothing worse as a manager or as the person getting the, getting the review if you're surprised. Right. And so I feel like it's my job to make sure people aren't surprised. I take a lot of notes. You know, I always document feedback that I want to give somebody or feedback that I've given somebody so that I can go back and when I'm doing someone's performance review, look at 12 months of things I've been writing down and say, okay, well, hopefully there's no surprises here. Hopefully, whatever I believe is the person strengths and opportunities are pretty logical. But I, I go back to that first time and I thought, well, I got through that, right? So how, how hard can another <laughs> Yeah, I like your, I like some of the things you said about giving feedback. Number one is make it regular, like do it periodically so they're not surprised at the end of the year and also document it. And a lot of, you know, some companies have systems to record it in, but unfortunately the, the periodic, they don't, I mean, maybe like you record it at the end of the year, but it doesn't necessarily build the discipline of doing it regularly. So whether you've got a folder or email or notes to, to track that, because what really stinks is it seems like people get evaluated on what they did last month, but it could be their annual review. So the things they did in January, yeah. people don't even, don't even remember anymore. Get a simple tool to approximate your cost of turnover in 10 seconds or less. Right now, go to benfanning.com slash turnover. Did you know the average cost of turnover is $235,975 per employee per year? If you're like most leaders, you don't know your number. Go to benfanning.com slash turnover right now and download this simple tool to start getting a handle on this catastrophic cost. No, I'm with you. In fact, I was one of one of my managers back at Proctor taught me because back then you take physical notes. Now I take, you know, online notes or virtual notes, but you take a physical pad. And he said in the draw a little box in the lower right corner, put a plus and a minus. And then in any meeting, if there's somebody in there that works for you, take notes about how they did. Make sure you write down and then tell them that your next next time you're together. And so it's trained me to always be taking notes about people when I'm in a meeting with them. If I'm in a meeting and someone that works in my organization has done a really good job on something, I go into their one-on-one -on -one virtual folder that I have in, in OneNote and jot it down. And then when we meet, because we meet every other week, I tell them that. Same thing for opportunity areas. And I, I try to review them. And then that 
serves a lot of purposes. One is I now have documentation. So when I do their mid-year review or their final review, I, I have data, I have dates and data, right? And it's so much more credible for that person to know that there's been a trend here, that you've told them that before. And I also don't have a great memory. And so it helps me because if I've got that written down, like, oh yeah, remember that? I gave him that feedback like three months ago and they really haven't made any progress. I need to, I need to double <laughs> like down a on broken that. broken record player situation. Yeah. I really, several things I like there, but the one big thing that sticks out to me as a leader is you have the discipline or the habit to record the feedback in the moment. And it's so tempting to go into a meeting and you're thinking about the outcome of the meeting. You're not thinking about giving feedback, but if you're habitually sort of being able to see that meeting or that presentation through two different lenses, one, how are my people performing here? And then two, what's the outcome? You'll be way better off because you're achieving your business goal and you're developing your team at the same time versus waiting for the end of the year. So I think that's a really good move, that, that, that kind of habit. And that's one of the first things I tell a new manager. Your job, the biggest change in your job right now is you have people that expect you to develop them. So you need to now allocate part of your time, just like it is delivering on your results, just like profit, top line, whatever those KPIs are, part of it is development of your people. And that's, that's one example of the things you can do to do that. And so I think people that realize that's what's new about being a manager is you need to start you're responsible for that. And I was fortunate enough to get that guidance from one of my managers earlier in my career, and it made it routine. I do it all the time. I don't think my wife appreciates it very much, but you know. Yeah. Giving, like, giving feedback yeah. to your wife, yeah, that could be a dangerous, slippery slope to, <laughs> to go to, unless you want the feedback in return, which I don't, I don't think I would in that moment. Yeah. Well, do my you... kids and I have done it since they were little. Oh. We give each other feedback after the game or after some event or that, something that is i love that so are you coaching do you do you, co I coached you coach when they were younger my kids are all older now but i was a soccer coach and i was an assistant okay. baseball and basketball coach so we'll talk after a game and the one thing i and i've always got an opinion so one thing i have to be careful i don't do is voice that first i have to ask what do you think right because so many times it's like well don't make the assumption that the way you think is where they are. Maybe they already feel like they failed. So rather than you be the one to tell them, let them bring it up themselves, right? Or conversely, maybe they thought they killed it, but you think they failed. And I'm saying this is kids or employee, it doesn't really matter, but you need to get a baseline. So the first question is, how are you feeling? What did you think about that game? What did you think about that meeting, right? You get a baseline and then you can then, you got to quickly steer because if you're in a different spot, especially if it's a negative one, you need to make sure that you do that in a really productive way but allows you to do that. And it was funny, the first time I realized it sunk in with my kids was my oldest was probably in his early twenties. And one of the, one of the, um, one of his friends wanted a job in the company I was at, and I was expecting a resume. And I said to my son, I said, Hey, when's your buddy going to give me his resume? Cause I've already sent it back three times. I said, it wasn't up to your standards. And I thought that was <laughs> so funny. Like he's giving his friend. I like it. This fee, I'm like, all right, well, maybe I did something right here. You know, I'm not a complete failure yeah. as a father. <laughs> no, I love that. And, it, and I'm glad you brought that up because I, I love coaching kids sports. I've been coaching my daughter in basketball and soccer for, for years. And I do have to tread very lightly in that feedback realm. It is challenging when she believes she had a great game. And in my mind, I'm thinking, was she at the same game that I was at? I didn't see that, you know? 
One of the interesting little hacks here that, that I picked up from Nigel Travis, who's a CEO of uh, Dunkin' Donuts, who was on the show uh, not too long ago. He loves coaching kid soccer. He's, he's British. He says that he always has the players call him Nigel. Never coach Nigel, never coach. He always has him called by, the, by his first name because he feels like anytime you put a title on something, you put up a barrier. And so he wrote this book about basically giving feedback. And uh, anyway, some of it's pretty brutal. Some of the <laughs> examples of like direct communication, but it seems to uh, work for him. The book is called, Ch it's about challenge culture. And uh, that's what he does. So anyway, a lot of what you're saying is resonating with me in that, uh, in that light. Yeah, give that, feedback. yeah I, I think it does take some time for people that get to, when they first get to know me to adapt to my style when it comes to feedback. I tell them, I always tell people very proactively in my first meeting, if I'm in a new organization, what to expect. But then when it actually happens, sometimes it, it's a bit of an adjustment because I am fairly candid. I don't always bring constructive feedback with something positive, but there's nothing positive to say. I just kind of say what it is, you know, and I tell them that. And I also adjust, you know, I make sure that people know that, hey, listen, if you feel like it's too much, then you need to let me know, right? Because I'm going to keep going, you know? And uh, it, what I found is that if people go through like two performance review cycles with me, then everything's cool. They're used to it, get it. They realize that even though I bring up a lot of things they need to work on, it's not like that is a deduction from their rating every time. You know what I mean? Like I really, I believe I tend to be fair and have high expectations. And people that have been through a couple of review cycles with me always come back and say that. But the first one can be tough because people tell you they want candid feedback. Not everybody really likes candid feedback. No. And because they haven't, people don't get it. And when they get it, they're like, oh, that's what it is. But yeah, it is. it really goes to show how rare it is uh, to get that. And I think people, a lot of people, especially people that really want to please and do a great job right out of the gate, they're not usually coming in just playing all aces because they've got to adjust. They don't know the people, you know, they don't know everything about the company. It's going to take some time and uh, yeah, maybe a little bit difficult. It's still a bit difficult in, in the beginning. <laughs> so let's, let's deep dive a little bit into mentoring because I know that you are a mentor in, in the MBA program over at Rutgers. Uh, that's something that I do here uh, for college of Charleston uh, in this area and find it rewarding. But two things, one is, you're a busy guy as a CEO. Why is it so important for you to be giving back to people that are earlier in their career like that? And then two, what role has mentorship played in your career? I'm going to answer in the opposite way. That'll okay. explain that why. makes more sense. So, too. <laughs> so, <eager laughs> to mentor. so I've had mentors from my first day on the job at P&G. Some were designated mentors, like in an official program. Others were just people that I looked up to. And we had a relationship of, of trust and candor that you know we, we would grow together. And so I had that in my career. I was very fortunate to have that. And so to me, it's not really giving back because a good mentor relationship, you're both getting something out of it. It's not a one-way relationship. You're both advanced either on learning more about that person and what makes them tick that I'll, you know, maybe I can or cannot use later, but it's, it's something really makes me grow. And then also just having another relationship that is based on a combination of usually, you know, social and personal plus professional. You know, if you're a successful mentor, it's a nice feeling too, right? To know that you've impacted somebody in a positive way. So I've never felt like it's a waste of my time. I sh that's not true. 
One of my mentor relationships at P&G was a waste of my time and I ended it because I was assigned a mentor and, and we did not work. Right. And so I remember that was a really good, difficult conversation. We've been struggling through two or three lunches paid for by the company. And uh, we could have just kept going down that road. But I'm like, I really, this is, I, I dreaded going to every meeting. And he's a nice guy. I'm a nice guy, but we just didn't click, did not click. And so I remember saying to him, I don't think this is going to work. I'd like to get a new mentor. He's like, thank God. You know, because I was, <laughs> I'm the mentor. I thought I can't, I can't really get out well, of it. That like, in and of itself, the courage to do that. And I mean, mentoring on how to, how do you respond when someone wants to end a relation, a business relationship in some way, right? Like, okay. Yeah. I mean, and, and a lot of times with mentors, they'll start or mentees, you know, how frequently should we meet? I think it's good to get started with a frequency, but if that's what's keeping you meeting, it's not really a good relationship. A mentor is someone that in, in your career or in, in that phase of your career, you can't live without. You need their opinion on something. I have buddies of mine that have been mentors for years, and they probably they probably don't even know that I consider them a mentor, but I need to talk to them on some frequency. I need to know what they feel about decisions I'm making. And so that just leads to, well, why do I want to do it? For the exact same reason. I, if I can help someone who's at a point in their life where they feel like they need a mentor, then it's payback for all the great mentors I've had. It's also an investment that I get a lot of value out of. And I feel like, you know, helps move things along. The, the Rutgers program is a great example. I remember myself in that program, in their seat, you know, talking to, because basically the way it's set up is they get a case study, like a lot of schools. And then myself and a couple other executives are their board and they have to present their proposal to us and get our opinions. And it's just great to see how eager they are to hear what we have to say and, and see the payoff of their invested time. And, you know, we just finished up uh, part of the case study last week and they, they had to uh, navigate their company through COVID, you know, to have it be real. What would they do? They killed it. They knocked it out of the park. They, they did everything that I would have done and I did with my team and they had 24 hours to figure it out. And so I'm sure they felt a lot of value hearing that from me and the other executives that, I've got 30 something years experience and my plan wasn't any better than yours, you know? <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, and it's, so it's like it's, a good karma situation where you're giving back and it's that virtuous cycle. You may get some new ideas. And I, I've found the same thing to be on the energy side. Like they bring so much energy and enthusiasm to the moment that it's infectious. Yeah. Always walk and I away think it's also, good. you know, I've had folks that I mentor that are you know, just friends of the family, friends, kids and stuff like that. And, and I, I think it's just, it really is very, it makes me very, very energized. And when I see, when I talk to, to um, kids in their twenties and young adults, um, and I see that energy level that they have and that, that performance desire, it gives me hope too. It makes me think, okay, <laughs> yeah, hope well, for the future. Yeah. It's like this, a couple of them and we'll be fine. You know, because so, it's unfortunate there's so much criticism against young people nowadays and they're what makes them tick and what motivates them. I just don't see it. Right. I get to see people at that level where they're just as hungry as I ever was. So what's some advice you'd have for people who, you know, they look around their lives you're like, you know what? I don't really have mentors in my life that are making an impact. But I'd like to get one. What What's a first step or, or a couple of steps maybe that uh, you'd recommend that they take? Yeah, that's great. Um, well, I think the first place to go is go into your network, but don't don't be limited to your first level network, right? 
if it's someone that's a young adult, look at your parents' network. I don't know about your situation, how old your kids are, but for me, I know a lot of my kids' friends, right? And now they're fully employed in their first couple of years of their career. And I would, I would hope that if they ever wanted to reach out to me that they would, right? And so I would say, look at your, look at the network around you, either your friends and colleagues, their parents maybe. And the thing is too, I think so many times you feel like a mentor needs to be somebody who's achieved more or has spent, mentors can be colleagues, people that just have a different way of doing things. Like I love Uh having mentors that are more uh, listeners than speakers. I'm more of a speaker than a listener. And so (laughs) I like it. Get a mentor. Like a verbal processor from that standpoint, like, like you're speaking and a lot of great ideas come out while you're speaking and you you say, oh man, that was a good, yeah, exactly. it's important for people to understand that about themselves. I mean, that's huge for, well, it's good. Cause then you can reinforce yourself. People that don't have that tendency. Right. I always put a lot of listeners around my team because I know that I'm not as good and I'm always working on that, but I think having a mentor or someone in a mentorship role that, that knows you and can process and think it through is uh, really valuable. Right. And so I always, I just tell people, you know, um, make the first call. You'd be surprised how many people would love to be a mentor, but just never get asked. Nice. Make the first call. Yeah. Have a little courage, reach out. If you get a no, or you get a get ghosted is not the worst thing in the world. Just keep until you find the right one. Well, most, I think most universities have some sort of mentor program with alums. I just, because I'm in this official program at Rutgers, my name also gets put into a database because I said I'd be willing to do one-on-one mentorship. And I just had a guy reach out to me the other day that I'd never met before. And he said, would you be open to be my mentor? And I said, sure, you know, let's, let's talk, let's see what happens. So that's another place to go to say, you know, wherever you went to school, do they have a mentorship program with alums? You'd be surprised. I bet there's probably a lot of alums that would be happy to impart some wisdom. So when's a time in your career that you had an unexpected twist or failure that led to your personal growth or success on down the road? Um, I would say I talked about it before, you know, late in my career, I uh, found myself back at a large multinational and publicly traded company and thought I can do this. I can be an executive again in this, in this company, but I'd been in private equity for a while. I'd been in private companies. And so I got into that and I, I didn't want to give up and I stayed there probably a little bit too long because I really just wasn't having fun anymore. Right. And, uh, so I found myself leaving and it was before I had something else lined up. And so that's, you know, I always had the confidence that something else would come around, but that's for someone who's worked since he was like 11, literally every day, even through college, I've worked to now have a break in my fifties where I have a chance to kind of regroup. I probably should have felt more joy in that than I did. Right. To me, it was more like, man, I got to get working. I got to be doing something, right? So it was, what was great was I consulted for about 18 months, almost two years and learned so much about other industries and other people. I doubled my network at the time and then eventually ended up in this role. So it was really, uh, it was a life changer for me. And again, I don't ever like to look back and regret anything because I feel like if I, what if I had left six months earlier, maybe this job would have already been filled or not been available, right? And so I look back and go, hey, that was all that was all what prepared me for where I am and made me available when the when the Lasco job came open. And that was later in life. 
to have that happen. Yeah, you know, that is a common thread in a lot of the of our CEO sessions where thinking about the CEO of ProSegure, which is one of the top security consulting firms. Yeah, my interview with their CEO, he, he had a very similar situation. He's like, hey, my my he had left one company and he had a gap there. And he's like, I'm not sure exactly what I'm gonna do, but eventually my network came to rescue me because he's like, I use that time and I built my network. He did, he did some consulting and Robert, you know, now he's you know, driving the ship over there. Um, but it's, it's an interesting experience and it's kind of, kind of, to me, it sort of rounds out your executive experience. Like you say, you've been working since you're 11. This is the one thing you hadn't had, which is like this creative space to consult, go more on the offense from a career perspective and sales yeah. perspective. And uh, it yeah, sounds I mean, like I, it worked out really well. It did work out. I don't know that I would choose it again because it was really stressful. Yeah, it is. Like you step into that abyss, like every yeah. morning since you're 11, you wake up, you're like, okay, I know what I got to do. This is it. Right. I and always knew like what I had to do. Space. It's just space. And what I found too was, um, you know, I, I, having an engineering background, always being, I'm very comfortable with rows and columns and, and not having that every day was, was really stressing me out. Right. And so I remember my, um, because at the time when I was doing the consulting, I probably spent 75% of my time consulting, 25% on the job search, right? So I really tried to make that job search very efficient. So I, I literally have a spreadsheet of every contact I made, it's color coded. I did, you know, like all sorts of funky things with Excel. I didn't need all that. It was a bit excessive, yeah. but it scratched the itch I, I had around yeah. need data. And it's the only data I had. And so you, I think you have to recognize that in yourself like what are those outlets that need to be uh, satisfied when you're in that kind of yeah, time like of your life and so you know whenever somebody asks me how i did my job search i send my spreadsheet over i'm like here it is take my spreadsheet feel free to use it you know this will get you going you'll only be able to figure out <laughs> figure out if you're an engineer degree from Rutgers, but you can look at it yeah, I get calls like, Ed, you have this conditional formatting in column L. What is that about? Why is there, you know, what, what did you call the over-engineering category? Maybe <laughs> a little bit, I think. Yeah. You know? No, that's great though. I mean, yeah, I love that. And you kind of relied on the skills that you develop and this kind of ties back to the theme that we talked about in the beginning where you've been picking up skills along and along in your career and you really put them to use where you are, you know, in your career. And yeah, I mean, you yeah, you got to know who you are. And I, I think I'm always learning more about who I am. Mm -hmm. But that was one where when I and it's funny, it made me think about it. I, I have a mentor that uh, when I was in that in that job search slash consulting time, and he said to me, you know, you you need outlets for the things that you would get naturally in your old job. There was a creative out, a creative outlet. There's a mathematical slash rows and columns outlet. And he goes, you need to make sure those get satisfied. And otherwise you're just going to drive yourself crazy if you know, you don't, you're unable to do that. It was really good. It was a good reflection on me that he had uh, and, and to, to steer me that direction. Cause then I was able to, okay, well, where am I going to get that next? Right. And how am I going to get that done? Cause it's, it's easy to say, all right, well, I've got a, a completely flexible schedule. I'm just going to work out 24 hours a day, but that's not, that's not enough. At least yeah, it wasn't for golf me. Golf working out. So <laughs> wrapping this up, Ed, what, what is one parting thought for the listeners that you'd like to like to share here? Yeah, I, I think everybody's different. You have to do what's right for you. But for me, and therefore hopefully for some people in your audience, 
don't necessarily overthink what you're going to do next, right? There's so many opportunities that are in front of you. I think you can get really tied up in, well, what's that next thing mean for 10 years from now? And the reality is the world doesn't work that way. It never has. Things change. You got to pivot. And really, for me, it's, can I grow in this next thing? Is there a place for me to add value, right? Because if you're adding value, then you feel good about it and the organization around you feels good. Now you're going to enjoy it, right? Are you going to have fun doing it? Because if you can't, if you can't get those three things, probably not the right move, you know? And so, but don't, so many people I know get hung up on, but that's not what I was going to do next. Well, look at my career. I mean, I, I'm very happy with where I am. Maybe others wouldn't be, but I'm very happy. But if you traced my steps, you wouldn't have gotten here, right? This is not where you were going to end up. And I had a great time doing it. So I, that's what I would tell people. Yeah. Great place to wrap this up. Check out. Ed's checklist, grow, add value, enjoy and enjoying it. Those three, I love that. And a great place to wrap up. Thanks, Ed. You got it, Ben. Thanks. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of The Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.